I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, Year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented, as always, by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But quite a while ago, I went on what I believe is clinically defined as an X-Men binge, and I read a shitload of X-Men comics. So, what do you want to bet that today's subject is gonna be X-Men comics. But not just any X-Men comics. No, no. Nope, today's X-Men comics, this is basically a continuation of an episode I had a few weeks ago. Told you I'd come back to it eventually. This is new X-Men, and this is basically the opening salvo, or I guess maybe part of the opening salvo, of Marvel, I suppose you could say Marvel Comics was in the process of not only updating itself to what was at the time the modern era, but specifically updating the X-Men to the modern era. And a great big part of that was bringing in Grant Morrison to eh, basically update a few things, basically give a few things a facelift. And this is both an aesthetic thing, you know, just in terms of the, the visuals and the way that, the way that things look, but it's also the ideas of the X-Men, you know, the philosophies that motivate this team. And also, I would say a, a sort of a conceptual update as well, you know, what is possible considering what the fact that we're talking about fucking mutants here, you know? So all in all, I'm a pretty big fan of new X-Men as a series, you know, the Grant Morrison run on X-Men. And so... What I intend to do, and we'll see how successful I am, but what I intend to do is actually be true to my word for once when I say I'm going to come back to something, actually fucking come back to it. Talk about it a little bit and basically get a little bit more of this stuff knocked out and sorted out. So that's the basic idea. And in relation to that, I'm going to be talking today about New X-Men number 117 to 120. Basically, this is a storyline entitled Germ-Free Generation and is the second major storyline in the Grant Morrison run on New X-Men. So, pretty straightforward, really. It's, I think, a ton of fun and it, like I say, introduces a lot of interesting new concepts into X-Men, but all in good time. For right now, this is Germ-Free Generation. Writer is Grant Morrison. Pencilers are Ethan Van Skyver for New X-Men number 117 and number 118. And Igor Carday, or Corday, for New X-Men number 119 and number 120. Before I get into the story summary, though, first, just a little bit of background information. The Stepford Cuckoos share a telepathic hive mind. Powerful telepaths individually, their combined power is even greater than its sum. These powers allow them the psychic standards of broadcasting slash receiving thoughts, 
mind control, planting illusions, force blasts of pure psionic energy, astral projection, and so forth. Other background information. The U-men believe in using mutant body parts to augment their human bodies as well as to grant themselves superpowers. They also live in specially designed environment suits to protect them from what they believe to be an imperfect and impure world. Until his death, they were led by John Sublime. Story summary is as follows. Hank continues training a new mutant student at the Xavier School. After completing their session, the student announces his new mutant name to the other students. He is Beak, because he has a beak. Get it? Suffice it to say, the other students think that code name is about as funny as you all do. Meanwhile, the, ex the Xavier School is being picketed by a bunch of anti-mutant protesters right now, since Professor Xavier has painted a target on everybody's backs by outing himself as a mutant. Of course, this isn't actually Professor X. No, no. As listeners of my last new X-Men episode may remember, Professor X's body has been taken over by the consciousness of Cassandra Nova. Professor X's consciousness has, has been imprisoned inside Cassandra Nova's body. Elsewhere, Wolverine and Jean Grey hang out together in a forest, kiss a few times, and then decide it had never worked between the two of them. Cyclops, though, has seen this entire thing and is not happy. Definitely not happy. There's a thing called happy, and Cyclops is not that thing. In fact, you might say he's rather pissed off. Meanwhile, back at X-Mansion, Hank tumbles onto Cassandra Nova's secret, so she psychically attacks him, and then summons Beak into the lab to beat Hank fucking senseless with a baseball bat. Afterward, Cassandra, still in possession of Professor X's body, boards a Shi'ar flagship for a hot date with Empress Lalandra. As mutant culture takes center stage in the world media, a new movement pro uh, propagated by uh, the book The Third Species begins to affect human-mutant relations. Several school shootings occur where the assailant takes mutant organs to graft into themselves, believing they will transcend to a higher state of evolution, which is to say a state which is somehow superior to the natural mutations that are occurring. Cyclops and Emma Frost investigate the impetus behind this movement by confronting John Sublime, the book's author. He reveals himself to be the leader of a group known as the U-Men, a radical group that doesn't improve themselves by changing their own genes, but instead by harvesting mutant parts from unwilling donors. Cyclops and Emma are taken hostage for fatal surgery. Meanwhile, Wolverine's following a lead on a new mutant, arriving just in time to stop a crew of U-Men from killing Angel Salvador for her insect wings. Despite her reluctance in accepting her mutation, and anyone's help in coming to grips with it, she does follow Wolverine back to the Institute where several squads of U-Men are about to assault and slaughter the student body. Jean Grey, with help from the Stepford Cuckoos, fends off the attack, eventually manifesting a Phoenix Raptor display in Psychic Dominance. Emma Frost and Cyclops escape from their captors, with Emma con confronting John about the damage done to her cosmetically enhanced face, threatening to drop him from the high-rise window his office sits in. John forces himself from Emma's grip, seemingly convinced by Martha Johansson, a floating brain in a jar John used to exert psychic control of his captives. Back at the mansion, Hank McCoy staggers from his ICU bed onto the front lawn. He cradles Cassandra Nova's body in his arms, revealing that Professor X's mind has been switched and he's trapped. So, what did I think? You know, I gotta tell you, I fucking love this comic in general. You know, this run on X-Men in general, but I really do dig this, this story, Germ-Free Generation. I really do enjoy it. For one thing, it introduces the Stepford Cuckoos and I fucking love the Stepford Cuckoos. Basically, they're a, a group of twin quintuplets, that is to say there are five of them, and they basically share a single mind. You know, they can basically meld their own consciousness together and create a kind of sort of hive mind, you know? And so I don't, I really can't even explain it, you know, just what it is, but there's something about the Stepford Cuckoos. I just fucking love them. You know, I think they're funny, they're lots of fun, and it's it's just, it's always a blast whenever they show up. You know, I'm really enjoying them as I work my way through the Grant Morrison run on X-Men. So just the fact that they're even in this book, not a lot, 
but just a bit. They're somewhat here in this storyline, but they play a bigger role as time goes on. And I just, I fucking dig them. Love them. Love them, love them, love them. Now, one of the things about the X-Men that I think probably everybody knows, I mean, this isn't exactly breaking news to anybody, is that as much as anything, the X-Men as a comic book franchise, you know, it's basically about ideas. And there's some philosophy to it. There's politics. I think there are even religious implications, depending on how deeply you read into the, you know, the narrative of things. I mean, I do think there is some theology going on here. I mean, I'm not trying to get all darkness to light here or anything like that, but I'm saying there are some kind of religious implications to the mere existence of a group like the X-Men, or basically just fucking superpowered mutants, is what I'm saying. So, anyway, the fact is, though, a lot of the ideas that are presented in this story, there are real-life analogs to some of these ideas that, honestly, guys, some of you might charge stately Magnus Manor with torches and pitchforks if I go a little too much into what I at least see and, you know, some of the, you know, the, the metaphors and the ideas and philosophies of, for example, the U-men and this whole idea of transspeciesism. Some of you might not like the connections I draw on that, so I'm just going to keep that to myself. But suffice it to say, it's not hard to think of a few current events that kind of sort of remind me of the U-men. So enough said there. But I guess to get into the the comics proper, you know, I should probably make a little bit of a uh, of an admission here. New X-Men number 117 technically isn't part of germ-free generation, but... It's also not really part of... Okay, fuck. Now, of course, I'm now I'm blanking on the name of the last story that I talked about. Yeah, E is for Extinction. It's not really part of E for, e for Extinction either. Basically, New X-Men, number 117, just kind of is there between those two stories. And so I didn't want to leave it out of my coverage of New X-Men, but at the same time, you know, it doesn't really belong in a discussion about E for extinction, you know? So to me, what made the most sense, because it's kind of a setup for germ-free generation, it, to me, it made the most sense to uh, basically save it for this episode, you know? Does that make sense? So, I don't know. Well, I, you know, that, either that thought process works for you or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, a full refund is on the way. But anyway, so just a little bit of truth in advertising there. One of the things that I like about this book is it gives us a little bit more of a glimpse into the students at the Xavier Institute. And, you know, I, for one, kind of value that, you know, because you've got, like I say, ultimately really two competing philosophies going on in the X-Men, at least at this juncture in their publishing history, where you've got the, for lack of a better expression, integrationists represented by Charles Xavier and the X-Men who want to live peacefully side by side and coexist with mankind. And then, of course, you've got the Magneto school of thought that says, no, these fuckers are dangerous to us. We're better than they are anyway. We're superior. We need to just fucking wipe them out and take over, you know? And so those are really the two main ideas that are presented in most X-Men comics at any given time. But one of the things, though, that ends up getting sort of overlooked in all of this is the youth perspective, because... It needs to be said that oftentimes the younger generation will typically reject the isms and ideologies of their forebears and basically try to save the world in a different way. And we don't really see a whole lot of their attitudes and beliefs, but we do see a lot of them as people. And to me, that means something. You know, first off, it, it, it just kind of speaks to world building. You know, the fact that there are people who attend school here. And as much as anything, they're here for their own protection. You know, I mean, yeah, sure, maybe they can fly or they have super strength or something like that, but they're still going to be targets of persecution. And so as much as anything, they need to be taught and trained how to use their powers, yes. But they also need to have access to a safe environment where they can just fucking be teenagers as much as they can be without fear of, oh, I don't know, having to dodge bullets and stuff on, you know, on their way home from school. So, and we see a little bit of that here. And... There's this moment when the when when Beast and Beak exit the danger room and we see this kind of a gaggle of other students sitting out there and you can just figure that 
in their own ways, every single one of them has been victimized in one way or another, you know, just, just because of their physical fucking appearance, if nothing else, you know, and a place like the Xavier Institute, on the one hand, I think some of them probably resent the necessity of even having to be there. On the other hand, though, this could be the first safe environment any of them have ever known. And so, I don't know. I mean, I just see so many fucking untold stories and stuff like that going on here. Now, we do get a little bit of the youth perspective a little bit later on in the story when the narrative kind of falls on Angel. And I got to tell you, Angel fucking pisses me off. You know, she is just an annoying character, unlikable, fucking hater. And there's really little or nothing that's redeeming about just her on a personal level. You know, she just, she's just uh, annoys the shit out of me really is probably the best way to put it. Now, the minute I say that, what I want to acknowledge is, you know, there are bratty teenagers in the world and this is kind of what they do. They act like brats. So why do you want somebody who's inherently a brat to be something other than what they are? Isn't that kind of unfair fucking et cetera? It's, I don't know. It's just, it's annoying. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's annoying. She's annoying. I just don't like Angel on a personal level. That having been said, though, it's kind of hard not to feel for just because of the shitty home environment that she's coming from, where I think she wasn't talking just idle bullshit whenever she accused her, either her father or her stepfather. It's not really clear which is which, <clears throat> but she accuses the man of the house of molesting her. And, you know, it's like I say, I mean, somebody who's been through that type of experience, you know, maybe it's perfectly logical that she's going to have a major chip on her shoulder and just be really defensive about everything with everybody, you know? So like I say, I mean, on the one hand, I, I don't really like her as such, but on the other hand, I mean, it's kind of hard not to feel for her, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, it's, it's just, I don't want to say good stuff, but it is good world building, put it that way. So <clears throat> that, though, is much later on in the story, and I'm getting way ahead of myself. But nevertheless, it just it needs to be said. So as to New X-Men number 117 proper, you know, uh, like I say, we've kind of talked about Beak at great length here. But, you know, this this protest outside the Xavier Institute, you know, all of these people. This is one of those times when I think the political metal, uh, the political metaphor that they're going for here doesn't completely add up because of the fact that, you know, these people are, are being portrayed as, you know, uh, bigots and whatnot. And it stands to reason that, that at least some of them would be, you know, because any kind of explosive emotional movement like this is invariably going to attract a mighty interesting cross-section of people. There's just no way around it. But at the same time, you know, Take this the way I mean it, but these guys kind of have a point of view on things, you know? So far, mutants have been a little bit of a threat to society at times. Now, yes, you've got the X-Men who stand up to, you know, evil mutants and stuff, and certainly, you know, we can't overlook that on the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, they... I'm not saying that they're right, these protesters. I'm not saying that they're right. I'm just saying that they have a little bit of a point, Put it that way. So anyway, my personal opinion is that, you know, good fiction, what it can do, like at its best, what it can do is take sort of, you know, real life conflicts, real or perceived, and basically put a, a spin on them such that, you know, the context is different. But now because of the fact that we're talking, in, you know, instead of, you know, here we're talking basically about anti-mutant hysteria, well, changing the context from whatever inspired this in the real world, now you can kind of put a little bit of a clearer understanding on it, you know? You can, be, you, you can better analyze the arguments simply by the fact that the, the context of, of the dispute has changed. You know, people who are born a certain way, being hounded and persecuted, and like I say, I mean... I don't think that this is a completely perfect, you know, metaphor, which is one of the reasons I haven't talked a whole lot about it when I do these X-Men shows. But, you know, what I, again, what I say is changing the context of it can sometimes help you see the, the, the conflicts and, 
you know, both sides of the argument a little more clearly. So if nothing else, I guess there's that. So I don't know. <sighs> to get much more specific than that, I run the risk of pissing off half or maybe the entire audience. So I'm just going to move right along here and, and, you know, get into this, you know, you could call this the X2 moment of new X-Men number 117, where Logan and Jean have, I can't say a tryst, but they have their little meeting in the forest or what's left of it. And it kind of reminds me of a similar moment in X2 where, you know, they kiss, but unlike X2, it's actually Logan who says, It'll, it, it would never work between the two of us. And we both know that. Now, like I say, I am not by any means, you know, the world's foremost X-Men expert. And so I think it would be accurate for me to say that I'm not as invested <clears throat> in the, I don't know, love affair, I suppose, between Gene and Logan. I mean, it's kind of neat. I enjoy it when it comes up. But I'm just not as... I don't know. I'm just not as invested in this as as some people are. You know, some people really get off on on this subplot, you know, and, you know, will they, won't they, can they, should they, you know, and I don't know. It's I've got some idea of what's coming in future issues, and I can't help thinking that the seeds of that stuff was pretty, you know, they were pretty well sown here, you know, so it certainly makes sense, especially when you think about the fact that Cyclops witnesses the whole thing, and then he runs into Emma Frost. So, in retrospect, yeah, that's some interesting foreshadowing. So, then we start getting into the psychic attack that Beast undergoes at the hands of Cassandra Nova, and basically, her method of attack for somebody like Beast is all the more effective for it being so cruel, you know? I mean, this is a guy with paper thin self-esteem as it is, you know, he knows that he's smart. He knows that he's, you know, in, in, incredibly gifted and brilliant. And he's probably helped. He's probably saved the world or helped save the world on occasions too numerous to mention. But at the end of the day, he's still the product of a lot of uh, persecution, abuse, torment. And so, and let's just face it, just full on fucking bullying. And so a guy like this, you know, when you call him bad, ugly, stupid, you know, things like that. Um, it's, it's all the more effective because that's something that he's had to live with his entire life. And scars like that stick around, you know? And so it's all the more effective because, like I say, it's just that extra fucking bit cruel, you know? And Cassandra knows exactly which buttons to press and presses the fuck out of them, you know? And, I mean, she even says, remember when you looked almost human in the mirror? And then it started. The fall from man to ape, from ape to feline. Poor, ugly Henry McCoy. There's no place for you in any mutant future. You're a devolver, zoo animal. Stumbling backwards down the tree of life. How does it feel to have someone throw up on your soul, Henry? And, you know, just the amount of torment that saying that shit to, to Hank... It, I mean, that's just, it's unfucking conscionable you know? And let's be fair. I mean, that's that's the least of the things that Cassandra Nova has done. But, ugh, it's just good writing. I don't know. It just gets you on a visceral level. <clears throat> and this gets me on a visceral level. So I guess kudos to Grant Morrison here. So anyway, the moving on in the story, the, the Shi'ar spaceship and... Cassandra Nova's rendezvous with Empress Lalandra, that stuff all relates to, you know, issues, conflicts, and stories that are coming in the future, and don't really relate so much to germ-free generation. So it's kind of out of scope to talk too much about this, except to say, it happened. So fucking it happened. To get into, you know, the next issue, though, this is New X-Men, number 118. And I, I kind of like the cover of New X-Men number 118 because it's, it's just a uh, kind of a pinup of Cyclops. He's staring at the camera, in quotation marks. His finger, his fingers are hovering just above his visor as if he's just about to blast somebody into oblivion, but his facial expression is totally placid, perfectly calm, you know? And, you know, as an adult, you know, sometimes you can just see an illustration and it kind of says something about this character and who he is. 
But this, you know, as an adult, Cyclops is somebody who's seen his more than his fair share of just weird fucking bullshit. And so you kind of got to figure that of all people in the X-Men universe, here's a guy who maybe on the one hand, the story implies that he's suffering post-traumatic stress disorder because millennials. But the other thing is, you know, he's a guy who is truly at this point faced so fucking many angry mobs, sentinels, supervillains, you know, evil mutants and all these other sorts of things, maybe even common criminals, that the idea of life and death jeopardy of like a real emergency, I don't think it really even affects him anymore, you know, and there's something in now, of course, I'm I'm blanking on where exactly I read this, but I swear to think that, you know, somewhere I read that, you know, the human body is capable of producing only a finite amount of adrenaline. And once you've used up your lifetime's allotment of adrenaline, that's it, you know? So it is possible that you can experience so many just fucked up, crazy, insane situations that you don't really have fear anymore. You know, you don't have a fear reflex anymore. You know, that mechanism is just gone because, you know, you've, you've used it all up. Now, if I'd only read that, you know, like once or twice, I don't know as I'd believe it, but, you know, after the 15th fucking time you, you know, you've read what looks to be a credible source saying, yeah, dude, fear is a finite, uh, a finite thing in, in the human consciousness. And once you've used it up, it's either not possible for you to be afraid anymore, or you're not likely to find anything scarier than anything that you than anything you've already faced. I mean, it, maybe it's possible. It'll just take a hell of a lot. You know, like maybe seeing a like a nuclear fucking explosion in the far distance. Maybe that might get you a little tense. But otherwise, you know, you've pretty much seen it all at this point. You know, and that's all to kind of bring it all back. That's kind of what this cover of New X Men uh, number one eighteen reminds me of. You know, just this totally calm expression that Cyclops is making, you know, it's like the guy just doesn't, he probably doesn't get scared of anything anymore, you know? And I, for one, could actually find that very easy to believe, you know? So anyway, uh, getting into this, you know, this issue proper though, uh, basically it, it opens with, you know, a school shooting and we see a, one of the U-men or an aspiring U-men, U-man, basically explaining his philosophy and why it is that he's done what he's done, you know? And then from there, you know, we get basically some information from the exposition news network that basically saying, yeah, this shit's happening everywhere. It's because people are reading this fucked up book and man, it's, it's, it's fucking weird. And you know, what do these people want? And the writer of the book denies any responsibility for it. And you know, fucking blah, blah, blah. But it's just really not quite so simple, you know, I mean, we, you can kind of well figure that there is some type of a connection going on there. So anyway, that gets explored in a little bit greater depth in the next two issues. But for right now, getting back into this issue, you know, the protesters outside the Xavier Institute, I don't, of course, they don't know, they, they don't number the pages. I, I guess this is page eight, but I don't know. Emma Frost says, and just as we were learning how to implant deceptive, erotic in, uh, images into the minds of our enemies, weren't we, girls? And then in the background, you see the Stepford Cuckoos saying in unison, yes, Miss Frost. And as far as I know, this is their very first appearance right here. So in uh, panel two on that, or actually, no, actually, they're in panel one, too. Kind of have to squint a little bit, but no, they're in there. You can see them. So this page, though, is their first appearance. And like I say, I there's just something about the Stepford Cuckoos I just fucking love, I love the cuckoos, you know? So, uh, and like I say, they go on to play a little bit bigger role in the story, and we'll get to that when we get to that. But for right now, what we see is Gene, Scott, and Emma basically confront this big group of protesters outside the Xavier Institute gates, and they're basically explaining sort of their side of the story here, you know? And, you know, when you think about it... <sighs> The very existence of the X-Men is proof that this group of protesters, that they're wrong, you know? If all mutants everywhere were the mustache-twirling villains that these people believe that mutants are, they would have wiped all the protesters out the instant they showed up. The very fact that they've been allowed to protest for what looks like a couple of days at the very least, 
kind of sort of tells you something about how tolerant, you know, the X-Men really are. You know, now that only goes so far, though, because you get to the point where, you know, Emma, as she says it, she basically uh, pushes the bliss buttons in their minds and they're going to wake up utterly ashamed of themselves. But as it stands, the entire crowd of protesters has been uh, knocked down. And what I think we're supposed to infer here is that Emma Frost has basically put them into some into some type of their own sexual fantasy, like whatever it is that these people have ever wanted to do, if you, if you catch my drift. In their minds, in this moment, that's really happening to them, which, apart from being just kind of sick and twisted, is really effective in terms of getting them to shut the fuck up. So, anyway, so... Going back to uh, X-Mansion, you know, goings on with Beast. Again, they don't number these pages here, but Scott says, Come on, uh, big guy, come back to us. You say one of Hank's students battered him senseless with a baseball bat? Fuck him, you know, blah, blah, blah from there. Um, You can actually see uh, one of Beast's uh, claws. It's kind of shaking around on on, uh, the bed. And you can actually even see that in the next panel... It's like it's digging into the sheets a little bit. And then on the last panel <clears throat> of the page, it looks as though the beast is drawing, depending on how you look at it, it's either a cross or it's an X scratching that into the bed sheet. So what the fuck is going on there, right? Anyway, so after that, we get into goings on with Angel. And like I say, Angel is just fucking annoying so uh i don't know i mean on the other hand though it's kind of hard to not feel sorry for somebody who's being chased around by these fucking weirdos these human you know and i don't know i mean you know what like i say there is (laughs) i almost fell into my own trap there is a comparison i could make with real world events and the human but like i say you guys might you guys might come at me guns blazing say, no, I'll just, just pretend I said something offensive and then that'll be that. So moving right along, Scott and Emma meet with uh, Sublime, the writer of the book, John Sublime, and he basically outlines his, his philosophy. He basically says, and let me see if I can find it here. Why should evolution be for the few, the strutting genetic elite and their skin-tight outfits and bikinis? Can't we all be elite? Sure, mutants have special powers, but humankind has radical surgery and new genetic modification procedures. My book is is about empowering the different, celebrating the strange, and about taking that step into a new world. I was already 30 and the president of a successful pharmaceutical business before I recognized my own tendencies and those of others. We like to model our behavior, or sorry, we like to model your behavior, you see, to learn from your every move so we can be more like you. Even the way you sit betrays an arrogance and self-confidence few ordinary humans attain in a lifetime. But, no, I don't believe I was ever involved in the kind of atrocities that you describe. I can't be held responsible if certain rogue contingents read my book and decide to form outlaw you man gangs, or if they twist my body modification philosophies to justify mindless violence. And that's about the time that Emma Frost has had enough of this guy and his horse shit because she basically, you know, says, shut the fuck up. We closed down your Hong Kong operation and we intend to close you down, you greasy little stain of a man. And it's times like these that I wish I could actually do a, a, a passable London accent, but unfortunately I can't. So I won't. But this is basically the moment where the you men get the drop on Scott and and Emma. And it's also right after this that Logan gets the drop on some human thugs and saves uh, Angel from, well, let's face it, she's being, she's, a, she's about to be murdered by these human thugs. And that is basically the point when X-Men, or sorry, new X-Men, number 118 ends. That's the end of part one. Because like I said, number 117 is not actually part of this storyline here. Not really. So, um, new X-Men, whoops, I'm going way too far along here. So that basically leads us into New X-Men number 119, which picks up more or less where number 118 left off. And basically one of these U-Men went and uh, broke Emma Frost's uh, nose. And here on uh, page two in in this issue, she's 
knocked down on the ground on the floor and she's got her legs going everywhere and not to put too fine a point on it but if you're at all familiar with the female anatomy i think there are some extra details drawn into this uh, uh onto this page that well don't really leave a whole lot to the imagination when it comes to emma frost you know the shadowing of it all and everything so i don't know and aside from saying that i that i'm pretty sure that's on this page i'm just going to go ahead and move right along away from private parts onto the story itself and basically this is sort of i guess you could say like the rising action of this story because you know the theory goes that with a lot of you know trilogies and any kind of three-act storytelling the second chapter is where or the second part is that's where the story can go anywhere and do anything because you've basically established the the characters and the players in the story you've established the overall direction of the story and so a lot of the the meat and potatoes of storytelling has has been done and now you get to dive headfirst into the story and just go wherever you want to go with it you know as a writer the first part has to set everything up the third part has to bring everything to a conclusion but the second part is where things always get fucking real and they get real here so you've got goings on with Scott and Emma being kidnapped by the uh, by the U-men, Logan coming to the rescue for Angel, somewhat against her will, <clears throat> and then you know just conflicts and stuff going on with Angel basically puking all over her food because she's becoming more and more bug-like all the time, and so the idea of just biting, chewing, and swallowing her food, it doesn't really work that way anymore. She basically has to has to vomit on it and then she eats it you know and that's a kind of as i understand it that's the way that spiders uh digest their food you know they basic first they have to puke on it and then they can eat or i i i think it's spy it's it's fucking it's it's some some type of bug though it basically pukes on pukes on its food and then and, and then it and then it eats and it's just yuck so whatever and Angel is basically as repulsed by that as I am, but, you know, there you, there you have it. Nothing's perfect in life, I suppose. <sighs> anyway, so, meanwhile, as all this is going on, some human uh, thugs roll up to the Xavier Institute, and basically what they're going to do is use the school as a sort of organ donation farm so that they can give themselves powers. So Jean well understands what exactly is going on. She calls the police and she says, yes, the Institute seems to be under some kind of attack. We could use a few squad cars here. There are children. And then the operator on the other line says, help yourself, mutie. And damn, you know, that's, that's heavy, you know. But at the end of the first X-Men movie, doesn't it ever wake you in the middle of the night? The feeling that someday they will pass that foolish law, or one just like it, and come for you and your children. It does indeed. What do you do when you wake up to that? I feel a great swell of pity for the poor soul who comes to that school looking for trouble. Well, we saw a fulfillment of that in X2, but before there was X2, there was this. And we see basically these people storm, uh, the U-Men storm uh, the X-Mansion. And that pretty well leads into new X-Men number 120 and the fight's on. It's basically uh, the... It's basically Jean Grey and the students at the Xavier Institute versus the human. And, you know, this is, I mean, when you think about it, this is always going to be a pretty lopsided fight. You know, I mean, Jean Grey is no slouch, you know, when it comes to just raw firepower. You know, but when you, when you keep in mind that she's got the entire fucking school behind her, she's all the more dangerous, but... As if all of that wasn't enough, Jean actually has a dividend. She does a phoenix manifestation right here and pretty well destroys the, among other, not, she doesn't just beat the shit out of the uh, human. She actually destroys their little biohazard suits and 
when you think about it, I mean, that's one hell of a way of dealing with them just because of their, I, I don't know, germophobia, I suppose. You know, that's a very effective way of, of, of dealing with human. So anyway, following all of that, Logan and Scott escape from human captivity and Emma attacks uh, Sublime and she is pissed off, not just about, not necessarily just about the, the existence of the human and, and I don't know, just the, the kind of bigoted undertones of all of that, but the fact that this guy broke her nose, you know, and for somebody like her, I mean, look, I wouldn't exactly be thrilled about it if somebody broke my nose, but eh, she just takes that all. It's personal to her in a way that I don't think it would be to just anybody, you know? So anyway, whatever happens, happens. And it's basically Martha, ultimately, who pushes John Sublime out the window. And that is pretty much the end of him. Meanwhile, though, Logan and Jean are reunited and she's finishing off her Phoenix uh, manifestation. And they all turn around just in time to see a beast coming out the door, cradling Cassandra Nova in his arms and saying, this is Professor X. To be continued. So anyway, all around, I just really dig this story. Ton of fun. And you know what? Actually, I'm, I'm looking now at this last page and, you know, one of these kids, he actually kind of looks sort of like Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson is a mutant. Yeah, who believed that? But anyway, so, you know, one of the things I just like about this story is, like I say, it does a whole lot of universe building. And for new readers like me, you know, this does give you a lot, a shitload of new storylines to invest yourself in. There's some reference to previous storylines, but mostly this story relates to itself and then also foreshadows stuff still to come. And it gives you sort of access points into the story, into this universe, into these characters, into these basic conflicts and themes and ideas and whatnot. And to me, this is what comics should do, at least once in a while, is basically give new readers an access point. You know, and that I think is one of the reasons why I enjoy this so much is because it's, to me, it's just so much more accessible to do, to write stories this way than it is to, you know, try coming in uh, to X-Men comics circa 1997. You know, I mean, I'm not, that's not a slam on those comics because I'm sure they're good. It's just to say that, you know, what I've seen of comics specifically from that year, X-Men comics from that year, they're not necessarily the most accessible comics. I mean, you pretty much have to already know what's going on. You have to be very conversant with continuity in order to get into it. And this is a little bit more, it's not that it's, it's free of continuity. It's just that it's all written in an accessible way, you know, because it can be, because this is the onset of Grant Morrison's run on the book. Now, if he'd stuck around for five years, well, then he, it would probably be a similar type of situation where it's harder to get into that get into the title at that point but anyway point is I really dig this it's a lot of fun you know I know that some of you listening are not exactly the world's biggest Grant Morrison fans and I'm not trying to tell you that you're wrong I'm just saying give these new X-Men comics a chance and if you don't like it you don't like it all right there are other X-Men comics that you can read that may be a little bit more up your alley I just happen to really dig this stuff it's just fucking great you know, so, and like I said at the end of the last episode, I don't know when it's going to happen. You know, this episode that you're listening to right now was fucking planned, right? I don't know when I'm going to come back to New X-Men. I just know that I am, and I want to do it soon. So just be sure of that. But anyway, so like I say, very highly recommended comics, very highly recommended story. Go out, pick this up. It can't cost you that much, and it's probably in a trade paperback anyway. So well worth checking into. That, I think, is pretty much it for me this week, so bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
From Isengard Holdings, it's the all-new iPalantir. Email, text messaging, FaceTime, YouTube. Why settle for obsolete technologies? With the iPalantir, you can chit-chat with your friends, catch up with loved ones, and receive orders from the Dark Lord Sauron himself, all with one easy-to-use device. And you won't just see a video of them. With the iPalantir's patented Great Lidless Eye technology developed in Mordor, you will literally see them. The iPalantir comes in a snazzy array of colors including charcoal, cloudy, sooty, obsidian, murky, and all new this year, the eye-catching onyx. Large family? No problem. The iPalantir easily networks with other iPalantirs. It's so simple that it's positively enchanting. And if you act now, eligible smartphones can be exchanged for up to $200 in credit. So, throw away your bulky old iPhone and trade up to the all-new iPalantir. The iPalantir is simultaneously the next generation of private communication and a throwback to simpler times. You know, back before a pack of midgets could screw things up for everybody else. Isengard Holdings. Making communication magic. dramatic reading. Sorry, I ain't sorry. Sorry, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. He trying to roll me up. I ain't picking up. Headed to the club. I ain't thinking about you. Me and my ladies sip dissy cups. I don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up. Suck on my balls, paws. I had enough. I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up. Put them hands high. Wave it in his face. Tell him boy bye. Now you want to say you're sorry. Now you want to call me crying. Now you got to see me wilding. Now I'm the one that's lying. And I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gone be all right. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. 
visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy. <laughs>